We're going to spend the next couple of weeks studying the book of Jonah together, um, which I think is fitting for a few reasons. Um, one is that I've been yearning to teach something from the Old Testament for a while, and this particular book has been kind of bouncing around in my head for a couple of years, really. I keep coming back to it in my thoughts and in my conversations with people and in my parenting, um, and I think it's appropriate given what Paul and, and Josh have shared with us about their foray out into Greece for a little while uh, as a reminder that we are also missionaries, that we have a responsibility for that too, um, to be bearers of God's work and his truth. So we'll spend a couple of weeks studying this together. Um, you're probably already familiar with it. Um, who knows the story of Jonah, right? Who knows the story of Malachi or Zephaniah or Nahum? Right? Yeah, the hands go down. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> why is that, right? That was the question that came up. You know, I'm not just teaching this because it's memorable. One, re- one answer is, you know, it's, it's the whale or the fish or the sea monster, and we can argue about Hebrew words later. Um, but that's such a striking and, and a vivid image, right, of um, being swallowed up whole like that and, and hanging out in the belly for a couple of days and then being vomited onto a beach. Um, it's a perfect story for kids, right? Yeah. It's got excitement, and it's got animals, and it's got grossness, um, and there's some very clear highlights that make it really memorable. It's also a good cautionary tale. You know, Jonah, the worst missionary, or how not to obey God, and, you know, we love cautionary tales. Um, They're useful. You know, as a parent, you're kind of always looking for a cautionary tale. You know, if you're in a parking lot, and you see somebody going by on crutches, and your kid asks, you know, why is that guy's leg broken? As a parent, you're thinking, well... Because he didn't listen when his mom told him to stop jumping on the bed, right? <laughs> There's always an angle. You know, if you see an ambulance go by with the lights on and they go, why is that guy going to the hospital? He didn't eat his vegetables, you know? <laughs> it's just, they're, they're useful for driving home a lesson, right? Um, and Jonah is a good cautionary tale. Why did Jonah get eaten by a whale? And there's a very clear, specific answer we can give. He didn't listen to God. And then if you're a parent, you also get to remind your kids that God put mom and dad in charge of them, so they need to listen to you too. There's always an angle when you're a parent. But the story of Jonah, it's, it's far more complex than that, obviously. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know that because of how it gets shared. Um, Jonah's in most kids' Bibles. It's exciting and it's memorable. Um, and it does teach some good basic lessons um, that are applicable to Christians, so it's a good bridge between the Old Testament and the New but there's, there's a problem with how it's represented in most kids' Bibles and how they share the story of Jonah. Um, and I have a few kids' Bibles, if you can believe it. Um, so I looked at them all, and of them, five of them included the story of Jonah. Of those five, four of them left out the fourth chapter entirely. There's only four chapters in Jonah, so that's a big chunk. And of those, two of them left out almost all of chapter three also which is really interesting. And next week we'll talk more about why that's really significant, but to put it in context, it'd be kind of like sharing the gospel with somebody and letting them know that Jesus died for their sins and then not mentioning that he also rose again. You know, it's not like the first primary thought that comes to your mind, but without that context, you lose a lot of the impact and the usefulness and the understanding of the story. Because um, it's in that last chapter, you know, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't actually read Jonah, we get to see the inner workings of Jonah's heart, and it's not pretty. Um, It is complicated and honestly a little bit depressing, which is probably why it gets left out for the most part. Um, Only one of those kids' Bibles even began to address the sourness that's in Jonah's heart. Um, Fortunately, it's the one that we use in our kids' program here, so that's probably a good sign. 
So the ending's often left out, um, which is a shame because there are a lot of big lessons there that we can learn, and we'll get to those in the next two weeks, but there's still a lot to take away from the beginning of Jonah, so let's lay some groundwork. If you can turn there, he's a minor prophet, it means he doesn't take up a lot of space in your Bible, but uh, track him down if you can. The book of Jonah is about contrast and it's about scopes. Okay, you have the, the contrast of God's enduring mercy and forgiveness contrasted with the hard heart of man. And you have the contrast between God's desire to save people and man's desire to see justice poured out on people as long as it's other people. And you have the scope of God's sovereignty over everything from a day-old vine to a city of hundreds of thousands of people. And... It's about the gulf between what we know intellectually about God up here and what comes out of the heart. It's the contrast between how the sailors react and how the Ninevites react and how Jonah reacts. And it's a book about a man that we know almost nothing about. Um, We get his name, which means dove, which is really interesting if you think about Jonah as the missionary to the Gentiles, that his name would mean dove, peace, right? We learn his father's name, and he's mentioned briefly in 2 Kings as having done some other prophecy, and that's pretty much it. Uh, We don't even know where he was buried. There are at least half a dozen places between Jerusalem and Mosul, Iraq, that claim to be the resting place of his bones. We know nothing about Jonah, which tells us something about the book. That even though it bears his name, that it's not really about him, right? That it's about God, and it provides us with a protagonist or an antagonist, I guess, depending on how you look at Jonah, um, that we can relate to. Uh, it takes place in the days after Elisha, during the, the reign of uh, the Hebrew king Jeroboam II. That's the early 8th century BC, um, which is important because it helps us understand some of the perception that Jonah has about the Ninevites and why he acts the way he does. So let's read the first three verses. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That phrase that starts the book, the word of the Lord came to, um, it's seen in a bunch of the prophets in you know, Hosea and Joel and Zechariah and Haggai and, and so on. Um, and it's important not just because it begins the book, but because it tells us who the book is really about. That the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that God sought him out and not the other way around, right? You know, Jonah didn't like, put a glass to the wall where, where God was and scribble down what he heard. Um, but God chose him to deliver a message of warning to the Ninevites. And if you know the story of Jonah you know that's probably a really bad choice, right? It's kind of like Jesus choosing Judas as a disciple. It's like, I mean, you know what's going to happen, right? Um, But that choice, like this one, is purposeful in its way, that God chooses Jonah and gives him a specific and simple job. Go to Nineveh and cry against it. And Jonah's response is, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm out of here. He refuses, right? He runs the opposite direction, And there are two reasons I can think of why he might make that choice. The first is that Nineveh is a long way to go and that it's a terrible city. 
So the place that, that Jonah is asked to, to go to by God, Genesis 10 tells us that Noah's great-grandson Nimrod built Nineveh in the land of Assyria, which is now uh, Iraq as we know it. Uh, the prophet Micah calls Assyria the land of Nimrod. Um, the city shows up a couple other times in 2 Kings and in Isaiah 37. Um, it's a city in what's northern Iraq now. It's basically surrounded by the city of Mosul, um, about five to 600 miles from Israel. So it's a long way. And it's not a favorite city for the Jews. And to get a sense of how the Jewish people felt about Nineveh, we can turn to the prophet Nahum, uh, who describes Nineveh as the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. So not a great vacation spot for the Jews. Uh, Nahum chapter three, the book of Nahum is all about how God is gonna destroy Nineveh. That's what the whole book is about. He says, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. It says in chapter three, verse five, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? The descriptions that Nahum gives about the destruction of Nineveh are jarring and graphic and bloody. Uh, you have ferocious lions piling up bodies, that kind of thing. Um, it kind of gives you a sense of how the Jews felt about Nineveh as well. Um, that destruction didn't happen in Jonah's time. It comes a little later. But the attitude and perception of the Ninevites for the Jews was very much the same in Jonah's day. So he's not exactly keen to go there. Nineveh at the time of Jonah is the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Uh, which is really the first and the largest empire in that portion of the world. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah calls it uh, an exceedingly great city, a three days walk to get through it. It was miles long along the Tigris River, um, and it was the most populous city of that empire. <clears throat> in the 8th century BC, they were already making incursions into Israel, some 500 miles southeast or southwest-ish. So it's a huge and powerful and pagan city. And both Nahum and Zephaniah uh, prophesy about the destruction of Nineveh and its empire. And in 612 BC, the Battle of Nineveh pretty much ended the empire. And by three years later, the city was basically gone. It was a thing of pastimes and a cautionary tale. Um, Jesus mentions it in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. It's a corrupt city and it becomes legendary for that. And that's why God is sending Jonah. He tells Jonah in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. He's sending Jonah with warning because their wickedness has come up before God. So that's possibility number one, I think of why Jonah might not have wanted to go, and it's far away, and it's a dangerous and corrupt and terrible place. Pretty good reasons. And meanwhile, most of the other prophets are getting messages for God's people, um, you know, so why should Jonah have to be the guy who goes out to the Gentile heathens um, 500 miles away? Which leads me to the second possible reason that Jonah says, uh-uh, to God. And that's because he knows God's character. Um, later in chapter 1 and verse 9, Noah tells the sailors on the boat, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah tells God that he is aware that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. 
Jonah knows that God is loving and has an incredible capability of compassion and forgiveness. He knows God's character. And Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want the Ninevites to know that. He doesn't want the Ninevites to know God's character. He doesn't want them to experience God's compassion and forgiveness and his loving kindness. He doesn't want God to relent in this calamity. He wants that calamity to rain down on the city of Nineveh the way that God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah wants to see that city destroyed, laid waste. He would rather see hundreds of thousands of people suffer and die a fiery death than go tell them about God's merciful character. How's that for a prophet that God's chosen, huh? You see that around you today, too? The subtle desire to let other people hurt instead of telling them what God can do, what he has done in our case. And I'm not just talking about the ambivalence to let it happen, but the, the active malevolence to wish it upon them. You see it in Jonah's heart here, and we're going to see it more in the next couple of chapters too, but we see it in the world around us too. We see it in our own hearts. I do, at least sometimes. You know, have you ever judged somebody as unworthy of experiencing God's forgiveness and his mercy and decided, I'm going to do nothing in the hopes that your own ignorance will allow God's deserved wrath to fall on them? My heart hurts to, to think about this as I was reckoning with that this week, with the times that I've let that happen. It can be easy to think that by doing nothing, that we're doing nothing wrong. But there are times when doing nothing is the worst possible option. When keeping our time and our gifts and our finances or our knowledge, but especially our gospel to ourselves, is the ultimate form of selfishness. Um, I saw a story online recently that went like this. Here's a hypothetical scenario. Let's say you're a single parent making minimum wage. Your take-home pay is this amount. Your rent is this much. Your utilities are this much and so on. And to total it out, the total amount you have to spend every month is within about $100 of your take-home. So you're making it, but just barely. And now imagine that you have a very cold month or you have to visit the walk-in clinic and because you're poor you don't have health insurance and you have some bill you can't handle. And so now your, your monthly take-home doesn't quite cover all those expenses. And pretty soon you can't pay your bills and things start to domino. And within a month or two, you're out of your apartment, living in your car with your kid. Somebody sees it and calls Child Protective Services on you. Your kid gets taken away. You go to work and get fired because it doesn't look good for that company to have an employee who lives in their car with their kid taken away. And pretty soon, it goes on from there and so on. And the conclusion, the takeaway of this story that I saw is this. Realize how close any of you are to this happening. This could happen to you if you think about it. So instead of making fun of people who are homeless or jobless, be thankful you're not in their shoes. And that's the end of the story. Be thankful for what you have. And at first glance, that seems like a great sentimental reminder. You know, I mean, yes, praise God, he's so good to us, right? Thank you for what I have. But this, this is the sinister working of the world, church. Think about that sentiment. Be grateful you're not in their shoes. Be grateful for what you have. And think of how tremendously unbiblically selfish that is to be grateful for what you have, to be glad you're not them. It is good to be thankful. Don't get me wrong. But it is bad to be thankful for what we have as the point 
and as the focus of our attention and our love and our desire. And it, it broke my heart because I think genuinely that this was meant as an encouragement and a, as a positive thing, but it's selfish and destructive because what the end of that story should have been was instead of making fun of people who are homeless or jobless, do something about it, right? Love them, support them, help them, influence the clearly flawed system that has put them in harm's way. Not to hoard your own blessings, but to pour them out on the world, right? Not to be selfish about it, but to take your time and your talents and make it better. It's not about being thankful that you're not suffering like that homeless person. And I use homelessness just as an example because it's a placeholder for the, the things that affect us in our lives. But that story shouldn't end with selfishness, but selflessness. That it shouldn't be about what we have, but about what the world needs from us. And this goes for your time and your skills and your finances, but it goes especially for the grace you have experienced at the hands of God. The knowledge of God as a gracious and compassionate God, as Jonah says, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. When we withhold the knowledge of how graceful God is from others, we are doing active harm. And that's why Jonah is not facing a charge of negligent homicide against the Ninevites by not telling them. He's facing conspiracy to commit murder. There's a big difference there, church, because his heart is after the death and destruction of Nineveh. And that's more distressing because he knows exactly what he's withholding. And he did it by trying to make himself unavailable for God. He thought that if he could just get away, that this would somehow stop the plan that God had for him. So he made himself unavailable. Unavailability is one of those things that we see throughout the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Many of you know this verse. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. When Jesus calls his apostles, one of the things he says in Matthew chapter four is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He wants them to drop what they're doing and give him their full attention and their time. Or you can look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, before the Good Samaritan shows up to help the injured man on the side of the road, a priest and a Levite have already crossed the street and walked past, hustling to get away. Because as soon as they're not the closest person anymore, they're no longer responsible. That guy's out of sight and out of mind. And their unavailability of being the closest person to him frees them of responsibility in their minds. And that theme runs throughout the Bible. Availability is central to our lives as believers. And the best part about it is that it's something we can actually control to some extent. I mean, I, I go through most of my life stressed out because I can't control so much of what's happening around me. You know, the price of gas goes up or the, you know, it snows and I have to shovel the sidewalk um, or I get sick every time that I preach. That's why I'm sucking on cough drops. Or, you know, my kids have cut their own hair again and I find it in the refrigerator or something. I mean, it's like, there's so many things that happen and I can't control them. Um, but I can control my availability and the openness of my heart to listen to God, to read the word, to be in prayer. And I think if you think hard about your own life, you'll recognize some times that could be put to better use as well. That availability, it's important to bearing fruit. But one of the truly amazing things about God is that he has a way of using us even when we try to make ourselves unavailable like Jonah does. Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get, I mean, I don't know how to express this, really, really, really far away. 
There's some debate about exactly where Tarshish is, whether it's a city in Tunisia or on the southern coast of Spain. But in either case, we're talking about at least 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem. Jonah was told to go 500 miles to Nineveh. And he decides to go at least three times that far to get away from his responsibility before God, which is why I don't think that the reason he doesn't go is just because it's too far. Because he's shown himself willing to go 1,500 miles at least in the hopes that God wouldn't be present there to track him down. But if you read Jeremiah 23, verse 24, it says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord using my parenting voice there. There's no getting away from God, and Jonah's running in futility. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been convicted by the Spirit that there's somebody you're supposed to talk to, or somewhere you're supposed to go, or something you're supposed to do, and you go, no, I'm going to go somewhere else, hang out with this guy who I don't have a responsibility to correct in his sin, because that way he won't get angry at me. It never works out, does it? When that happens with me, I end up with this kind of gut punch of misery on top of the conviction that I already have. And then I still have to go do the thing I was supposed to do in the first place, except now I'm cranky about it and sheepish. It's all the time. And we're not alone. Paul, Paul expresses something similar in Romans, right? 7:18. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And that's part of a larger discussion from Paul. I don't want to take that too terribly far out of context, but that's Jonah's angle here. The dumbest part of it is that there is a clear solution to this. Instead of running away, we should reread Proverbs 18.10 that says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Not away from it. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. God loves us, right? He's shown us where the hideki is for his kingdom, right? So we can get in. Uh, you know, how often we pretend to forget that it's under the third rock from the left of the doorway and worse, you know, take the key out and then chuck it into the bushes so nobody else can find it. That's what Jonah's doing here. He doesn't want anybody getting in. Not those Ninevites. He's not just trying to get out of his responsibility, He's trying to make sure that the work doesn't get done. That the Ninevites will die in their wickedness and their ignorance because no prophet could be bothered to come tell them about the goodness of God. Did you ever see the old Mission Impossible TV show? So, you know, at the start of the show, he always goes in and he gets the, like, the tape and listens to his mission, you know, should he choose to accept it. Um, and at the end of the tape, it always says, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Um, and, you know, Jonah's plan is basically to go listen to the message and plug his ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you, until it melts. <laughs> He's going to take the message that God gave him for Nineveh and make sure it doesn't get anywhere near there. Because he's going to Tarshish, which gets harder to enunciate every time I say it. <laughs> but he's not going to Tarshish, is he? Because God has a plan for Jonah, and that plan is to send him to the Ninevites with a message. So let's read some more verses. When you're probably realizing now I said I teach through this in three weeks and I've only gone through three verses already. It's going to get better. Don't worry. Uh, we'll start in verse three. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you were sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. I don't know what it is about Tarshish that is so appealing to Jonah. It may simply be that it's as far as ships go in that day. Um, whatever the case, he pays his, his fare and he leaves. And in verse 4, these people are now in danger because of Jonah. If you notice this, that the Jonah has put the Ninevites in danger because he's not delivering the message of warning. But his inaction toward them has also now endangered the lives of these sailors and their cargo and any other passengers on the ship and so on. That parallels in our lives a lot, I think, right? By not sharing the gospel, we endanger not just the people we were supposed to share it with, but the people we go to anyway. Because if our command is to share it and we don't, then we're acting in sin and disobedience. And then the people we are around are seeing us act in sin and disobedience. <clears throat> the scope of our sin is always, it's always broader than we realize, right? There's collateral damage. The sailors aren't terribly worried about sin at this point. They're worried about the wind. It says he hurled a great wind at them and caused a storm. And it's so bad the ship's about to break up, which is scary. I mean, it's not, this is not the you know, steel double-hulled ships that we have today, but I have to believe the sailors believed in the integrity of their vessel. You don't go on a 1,500-mile boat trip without thinking your, your ship is sound and it's going to be able to survive whatever weather you face. So this must have been some storm. And the sailors that I've met are kind of weirdly calm in situations like this normally. My father-in-law is retired Navy, and I've met some of his Navy buddies, and I know a few other sailors from uh, military and civilian walks. And I'm pretty sure that you could stick them outside in a hurricane, and they'd look at the, you know, the trees bent sideways and the, the, the water up to the car's windshields and stuff, and they'd go, mm -hmm, yeah, it's raining. You know? <laughs> Not because they're indifferent, but because there's no panic button on these guys. Um, they've seen and experienced everything the water has to offer. And so when you see a reaction like you see here in verse 5, where the sailors are scared for their lives, it tells you that something really crazy is happening. And you have these guys crying out to their variety pack of gods and throwing cargo over, um, and they're scared and willing to sacrifice pretty much anything to save themselves. Meanwhile, Jonah's sleeping. And that, that can look like it mirrors Jesus asleep on the boat, right, with his disciples during another storm that scared some experienced sailors. But Jesus was asleep in the open air because he needed the rest and because he was in control anyway. Jonah is sound asleep because he's hiding and tired from it, and the lowest parts of the ship are the least affected by those waves. So don't give Jonah too much credit for the Christ parallel. Making excuses and hiding from God wears you out, I guess. And in verse 6, the captain goes to wake Jonah up. And he, he can't believe what's happening, that Jonah's asleep. And you notice how he's hoping that Jonah's God will help? Um, which means that none of their other grab bag of pseudo-deities have done anything for him. And now they're willing to even wake up this guy snoozing in the cargo hold. Verse 7 says, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on guess who? On Jonah. Now, I'm not going to say that God is especially interested in the results of gambling and games, but 
I am going to say that I don't think it's a coincidence that the lot falls on Jonah and that this particular game of chance might be slightly rigged. Um, because remember, God has chosen Jonah for a purpose, and that purpose is not to die at sea halfway to Tarshish. That purpose is to deliver a message of warning to the Ninevites. The sailors are looking for somebody to, to pin responsibility on, and God kind of points a cosmic finger at Jonah here. In verse 8, they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and from what people are you? So now the sailors are playing 20 questions, trying to get Jonah's full biography to find some hint of what they can do to, to stop and get out of this mess. But they don't ask any questions about Jonah's God. You notice that? They don't ask how powerful his God is. They don't ask if his God is merciful or if his God listens to prayers or if his God can hear him all the way from Tarshish. We, how often do we find that we go through the same thing and ask all these questions. We create kind of this troubleshooting flowchart instead of just bowing down before the one Lord God. You know, so the hope would be, I think, that Jonah, a prophet chosen by God, can maybe, you know, maybe he can help show them how to trust in his God. So let's see, verse nine. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's a good start for Jonah. Right? He answers their question, but he also explains that his God is the Lord God who made the darn sea that's given him so much trouble as well as the dry land. And his God is the Lord God who is sovereign over everything. And Jonah is a Hebrew, one of God's chosen people who fears the Lord God. This is a great start. So surely he can help them except for verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is why Jonah's a cautionary tale. You have a Hebrew who fears the Lord God who made the heaven uh, and the sea and the land, except that instead of honoring that Lord God, they have in their hands a Hebrew who is fleeing that God in disobedience. The sailors might have been encouraged to have had a devout Hebrew aboard their ship, and instead they're devastated because they have a fugitive or a deserter. Jonah had told them previously that he was fleeing his God, and now they realize that he wasn't fleeing some dime store knockoff God. He was, he was fleeing the Lord God who made everything. And they realize that they're really in it now. And how they react to this and to Jonah is really fascinating as we wrap up the next few verses. Uh, let's read 11 through 13 for their initial reaction. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Verse 11 is really interesting. They know they're dealing with a deserter from God, and they, and they, have, they figure, rationally, I think, that some punishment is necessary to kind of restore the order of things and bring back, uh, Jonah back into favor with God. Um, what fascinates me here is they don't ask Jonah to pray anymore. They move past that. Um, they don't ask him to call on his God anymore, and they jump straight to punishment. I mean, this guy has disobeyed the Lord God who made the seas and the dry land, so they figure they have to do something appropriate um, to Jonah so that his God will help them. And note also that they, they assume his God's ability to do so. Right? They assume that his God has the authority and the power to calm the seas if they do what's right. 
And I think Jonah starts to realize here the, the gravity of his mistake and disobedience. So he tells him what to do. He says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Okay? Jonah realizes that what's going on is his fault, finally. Um, this is when the light bulb clicks, I think, um, that he can't outrun God. That the plan that Jonah has made for himself is fallible and broken and childish and faulty. And that God, we see, is going to twist Jonah's plan to line up with his plan. Because God's plan is to do what with Jonah? To send him to the Ninevites with a message. And yet Jonah, instead of giving in and saying, okay, you know, God, you win. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Let's turn the ship around and head back, and then I'll go to Nineveh. And don't you think the sailors would have done that? I mean, they'd already tossed their cargo. They weren't losing anything else. They were scared for their lives. They would have turned back in a heartbeat, I think, and gone, and Jonah could have walked across dry lands to Nineveh. But we don't know if that's actually the case because we don't get the chance to see what would happen. Jonah... He isn't going to ask them to turn around because even though he's realized his plan to run away was foolish, he's not ready to give in to God's plan yet. And I know I'm like that a lot. I've had plans that were foiled and said, okay, here's plan number two. And then that one fails. Okay, plan number three. And pretty soon you look like Welly Coyote with your manuscripts of plans in front of you. And we keep failing and God keeps course correcting us to line up with his plan because, you know, whether we want to or not, our plans are written in dry erase marker and he's writing in Sharpie, right? We can't erase that. It's happening. <clears throat> and, you know, it's like those invisible dog leashes. Have you seen those? That are, they're stiff so it looks like you're, you're, you're walking a dog when it's just an empty collar. You know, it's the illusion of control over something and there's no substance whatsoever. And Jonah here, I think, is being a little overdramatic It's like, really, Jonah? Throw you into the ocean? Instead of letting God's message get to Nineveh, you're going to make sure it doesn't by drowning? So now, instead of him ignoring the Mission Impossible tape, this is him taking a sledgehammer to the tape player to make sure nobody ever plays anything on that again. And I'm not convinced he's doing this to save the sailors. I'm convinced that Jonah is so set on not delivering his message to the Ninevites that he'd rather jump into a stormy sea and die with certainty than risk surviving and having to do what God told him to do. He's so set against the ways of God. So are we sometimes. And I can only imagine the looks on the sailors' faces, like they maybe were thinking they were going to have to tie him up or maybe whip him a couple times or something. They're not going to throw him overboard. You know, these are sailors. And when you're on a boat with somebody, there's a togetherness about that. When somebody goes overboard, it's everything to get him back on, right? You don't just toss somebody over the edge. So in verse 13, they, they sort of seem to shrug off his suggestion, and they try something else. They try rowing back and, shockingly, doing what a prophet chosen by God said to do. Not, not doing that doesn't work. Even though Jonah's in disobedience, he's still speaking truth, strangely. And when it doesn't work, their second reaction is in verses 14 through 16. We'll close here in just a minute. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 14 shows us a stark difference that they take Jonah's God seriously. They learn from their mistakes and from Jonah's and they call on the Lord themselves before Jonah does it. 
And it's not a prayer of repentance exactly, but it's a prayer for mercy. And they recognize God's power and they recognize that they are subject to it. Oh Lord, you have done as you have pleased. They recognize his authority and submit to him. You know, Jonah should be taking notes. And it's beautiful too that they don't want innocent blood on their hands because it's this great contrast with the the crowds in front of Pilate in Matthew 27. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Very different approaches here. The sailors didn't want to do wrong. They don't seek defilement, and they believe themselves to be doing the right thing. They're not attacking Jonah. They're just doing what he said they had to do, and they recognize God's authority in that. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Psalm 89, verse 8, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea, and when its waves mount up, you still them. Sailors got a firsthand witness of that this day. And as far as the sailors go, this is the end of Jonah for them, as far as I know. And what a testimony that God has made in this. If you look at verse 16, right? The men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah's disobedience was bad. He had a dark heart toward the people that God wanted him to warn. And his disobedience led to the endangerment of a bunch of innocent sailors. And even what looks like his own sacrifice in going overboard is steeped in selfishness. And yet, imagine the testimonies of those sailors who survived this. The sailors that I've met are like fishermen. Every fisherman's got that story about the big fish, the one he caught or the one he didn't, right? And it gets bigger every time they tell the story. You know, sailors are kind of the same way, except it's about storms, right? The storm that they survived, and that usually gets bigger too, I think, every time. And for all the sailors on the board, the boat that day, this is their storm story. And how does that story end? They see a Hebrew, a man who fears the Lord God who created the sea and the land, sacrifice himself, and that God then saves them because of that sacrifice out of his mercy. And they have great fear and make sacrifices and vows. And they're going to take that storm story where God is the hero and they're going to take it everywhere they go. First to Tarshish, which is 1,500 miles away. Maybe 2,500 if it's actually in Spain like some people think. And so even in the disobedience of Jonah, this, in, the, in the heartless and just petty, stubborn show of denial, the message that God is mighty and saves is spread thousands of miles not because of Jonah, but in spite of him. These sailors are part of God's plan and didn't even know it. And so was Jonah, even though he was trying not to be. There is no escaping the plan of God, church. You will not be ignored. You cannot run away from his will. And even when you try to run away, he will still use you. And next we'll see that even when you jump off a boat in a storm to certain death, he might still not be done with you. So I would encourage you not to jump off the boat, church. Not even metaphorically. Not to be so caught up in how you would like to deliver the justice of God that you forget that he told you to deliver the message of his peace and grace and mercy and hope. And not to be too busy for God, but to be available. To stop running away to the Tarshish of your life. 
and just go to Nineveh. Because you have an even more profound message than Jonah did. Because ours is a message not just of warning, church, but of the great grace and hope that is in Jesus Christ. We have the message of the Messiah to share. So go to Nineveh. Whatever the Nineveh is in your life, if it's an an angry neighbor or a, a messy boss or the refugees in Greece or your family around the Thanksgiving table this week, if God is calling you to deliver a message from him about hope, then arise and go. Let's go with that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you are active, that you are going, that you are sending people, God. We ask that you would send us, that you would help us know so clearly where you would have us to go and that we would rise and do it, Father, in obedience and love, that we would share the mercy and the joy that you have shared with us, God, and not hoard it for ourselves. Father, I thank you so much for this church body, Lord. What a fantastic opportunity to love among each other. Will you bless us in this week as we speak to others about who you are and what you've accomplished, please? Use us, God. Thank you so much. Amen.